Welcome to The Entrepreneur, conversations with entrepreneurs who view their past failures as learning experiences rather than setbacks. Today's guest on The Entrepreneur, Dave McLaughlin, CEO and co-founder of vSnap and currently the global head of member experience at WeWork. You have to have kind of bulletproof self-confidence and also deep humility. You have to have enough conviction about your nutty thing to really get after it and give yourself over to it and drive it forward. Now here's the host of The Entrepreneur, Ashley Breed. And we are back. This is Ashley Breed, the host of The Entrepreneur Podcast. And I am so thrilled to welcome back Dave McLaughlin, the former founder of vSnap. Dave's going to talk to us about what he's been up to since we last chatted and also give us maybe some words of wisdom. How are we doing? Great to see you. Welcome back. Okay, so when we last met you, we talked about you being the founder and of vSnap and some of the difficult decisions that you faced in running that and eventually ending your tenure there. What have you been up to since? Well, let's see. I wrapped up at vSnap in 2014, I think, 2015, I think the beginning of 2015. And then I went to WeWork and I was there for seven years, almost to the day. And I started out just kind of running the Boston market. The Boston market was uh, an underperforming market for them at the time. And so Adam Newman, who was CEO, who had hired me, was like, look, we don't really understand why. We just need you to figure that out. And then once you do that, then we'll have lots of other things to sort of ask you to help with because the business is growing really fast and there's no shortage of interesting problems. So we did figure the Boston business out pretty quickly a few months and, and got it kind of humming. And then I just started to take on other markets. And and over the time that I was there, probably five of the seven years that I was there, I was in this operating leadership role where kind of had him a vision of how he wanted the company to work was to have a small number of people, me being one of them, that he could hand over kind of geographical chunks of the P&L and just say, hey, you, you make any decision you need to make to make the business work in this geography. And so that became the East Coast and that became uh, a little more of North America. And then it became most of North America. And then it kind of went back to the East Coast. And the reason is as the business was growing so much, we kept shifting the geography around. But at the at the biggest point of that time, it was a billion, a little over a billion dollars in revenue that was kind of rolling up through this, this team that I was leading. And I don't know, probably 1100 employees or something like that. So it was quite big. And and challenging and interesting. And yeah, it was kind of an amazing experience in spite of all the, the, the things that happened, the WeWork story, the kind of implosion of our first attempt at an IPO. And then what was amazing after that was, um, I shifted into a global role under the new leadership that came in and, and, and we kind of marched the business back to a public listing successfully, which was awesome and a lot to learn in a different context and so on. So that's what I was doing for most of that time. And then I left, I left about three months ago, maybe. And I went to join a blockchain startup called Reach. And Reach is essentially the best tool for building and launching applications on blockchains. And I'm the COO there, COO, just to make the audio clear. <laughs> well, so I'm really interested, though, with the WeWork, uh, seven years. This was a whole new skill set, probably, right, at this global operational leadership level with 1,100 employees and a billion dollars in revenue. You've been a speechwriter, a movie producer, and a screenwriter. You've been a founder and an entrepreneur. This is on a major global scale with the operational leadership. Did you bring any of your leadership traits from those other jobs into this? Yeah. Short answer is, yeah, it was. There were all sorts of new challenges in it, and, and that's why it was so interesting. And frankly, that's why it stayed so long. That's the longest job I've ever had in my life. So, uh, so that tells you something and, and the, 
the group of people that we were kind of in the trenches with was really an awesome group of people. Felt like you could really learn a lot from the people to your right and your left. And you were kind of constantly being put in situations where you were out of your comfort zone. I mean, when I joined the business, if I remember right, I was about employee number 400. We eventually grew to about 15,000. And then we kind of, after the IPO debacle, then we kind of retrenched and brought that down closer to like 5,000 or a little less. But that was sort of the scale of growth. I think when I joined, we had 20 in my my recollection, we had about 25 or 30 buildings. We grew that to about 890 buildings, I think was the number at the high end. So, and I think at the time we were in maybe 12 cities and, and maybe only two international, or I think we were in, we were in Tel Aviv and we were in Amsterdam and we were, we had just opened London. And then we wound up growing to something like, I don't remember the number exactly, but I want to say it was 46 cities across 23 countries, something like that. So the scale and the velocity was amazing. And yeah, it just challenges you in ways that you can kind of only get that experience in, in that sort of a rocket ship context, which is why it's such a rich kind of valuable experience. Yeah. And I think, again, a lot of it is, it sounds very entrepreneurial, just at a much bigger scale than say a startup. And I guess WeWork was a startup actually, but just at a bigger scale. So I'm just always amazed. You seem to just be a person who can do a multitude of things really, really well. And so congrats on that success. That's amazing. Now tell me yeah, about Reach and how you came to find them or they found you. Well, what happened was I had always been interested in crypto and blockchain, but had never had the bandwidth to, because I was busy doing those things I just described. I never had the bandwidth to actually like kind of get up the learning curve on what is a fairly dense, like kind of impenetrable topic. Like it just is so hard to, at least I found it so hard to get my head around. And I think a lot of people have that experience. And then when COVID hit in the role that I was doing at WeWork at the time, I was traveling three or four days a week, every week for like five years in a row. And, and then COVID hit and I wasn't traveling at all. And what that meant was I got about 16 hours a week back. And, and like, I know in everybody's life, certainly in my life, if you give me 15 hours, like that's a big chunk, right? And, and so I decided I want to use this to learn about blockchain and crypto. And, uh, I'm going to just apply this time that way until I figure it out or until we start traveling and I have to kind of give this time back. And then at the same time, my kids played hockey and, and the, they stopped allowing the parents in the rink because of COVID. And so then I had this other thing where I go take them to hockey practices and, and I had nothing to do. So I would sit in the car and just kind of like devour podcasts and try to take notes. And that was my kind of method of learning it. And then I had a friend who is Chris Swenner, who's the CEO of Reach. And Chris had worked with me at BSNAP. He was the CTO at BSNAP. So when I ran into a, a topic within kind of my exploration of blockchain, web free crypto that I didn't understand from time to time, I would call Chris and say, Dude, I just can't get my head around this piece. Like, this is what I think it means. Where am I wrong? What am I missing? And we started having a conversation like that. And, and then he started saying to me, look, we're growing pretty fast and we're starting to hit these kind of challenges. How would you handle this? What would you do for this? Do you know anyone I can hire for that? And so we were just kind of trading our respective expertise with each other and helping each other. And at some point he said, you really should come here and help us scale this because it's going to be a rocket ship and, and we could use somebody who's been on a rocket ship before. And we, we sort of kept trying to figure out what that would look like. And here we are. Wow. I mean, it does seem like all the pieces fell back into place and it's all about sort of maintaining good relationships across whatever you're doing, 
staying hungry, continuing to learn and follow your passions. And then it seems like every sort of skill set and every weird turn that life takes sometimes actually leads you in the right direction. So very exciting. Yeah, thanks. Wow. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about my favorite question on the entrepreneur is describe yourself by saying three things that you are not. And I will preface this to say that in the history of my seven to nine episodes, no one has ever said, I'm not a success or I am not good at X or I'm not a good person. It's really interesting the way folks, I think it helps to reframe a lot of this. People say, I'm not someone who can sacrifice their family for their their business or I'm not someone who's good at fundraising or I'm not willing to fire my best friend. So interesting stuff. Just to preface. For better or for worse, I am all those things. I can't use those examples. We can edit all that out. I no. kind of just made that up off the top. So, No, I don't care. Well, first, I think, again, for better or for worse, I'm not insincere. Like, like I think if there's one thing, like I am, I am very sort of what you see is what you get and, and direct sometimes to a fault. And that's sort of the way I'm worried. I think the second thing is I'm not bored. I, I've never been bored. And if I ever said I'm bored, I would probably slap myself because <laughs> it's kind of in my, I don't know, frame of reference, uh, growing up or whatever that like to be bored was like a privilege of the aristocracy and like, you don't, you don't have the privilege of being bored. It's a pretty dubious privilege, but, <laughs> but that's just like, not something that I would ever be. If I'm bored, I, I find something to do. I find something to worry. And, and I think that's sort of the next thing. I, I'm not lazy. So I have all sorts of flaws, but like fundamentally, I'm curious, I'm hardworking and I'm sincere. And, um, again, there are situations where those things create complications and there are situations where those things really help you navigate difficult situations. So I don't know that's, that's where my head went with your question. It's a, it's a, it's a tough question, but I think you, I think you nailed it. One. I sat on a panel a couple months ago uh, with female founders and asked them what would be your favorite failure and or yeah I think that was the question. <laughs> Anyhow, the there was conversation in the room that came out around failure is not necessarily binary, right? It's not either. It's it's sort of a series of micro successes and a series of micro failures. Maybe if you have to end up shutting down your 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 startup, maybe that is a measure of sort of a it didn't work. But if you could maybe elaborate a little bit on a micro failure or a micro success that you have had in addition or. Well, it's funny, right? For those of the listeners that don't know what vSnap was, which is the company where you and I met because we were in an accelerator together and I was leading vSnap and you were leading your startup. And what vSnap was in launched in 2010, myself and Jim Joyce started the company. And, and our belief was that in a world where more and more communication was happening in text and where more and more business interaction was shifting to like inside sales and remote negotiations and so forth. It was going to be important to have a application where you could easily kind of bring tone and warmth and humanity into the interaction because that could increase the, the trust in this sort of potential transaction and it could create a different context for getting the deal done or making a sale or solving a customer service grievance or whatever it might be. And so we built an application that allowed people to send short video messages, not more than a minute, and to, to get analytics on how those were received and so forth. And, and we focused on a use case around sales 
and a little bit around customer support. So in the um, buyer's journey, I can kind of engage you through like a content marketing, marketing strategy. And then once you are engaged, I can send you a little video message, just very simple, unvarnished, kind of, uh, it was a lot about how unproduced it was. So it'd be like, Hey, Ashley, I'm Dave McLaughlin. I just want to put a face with the name, looking forward to working with you on this, blah, blah, blah. And, and what we found was that that increased the close rate by about a third. So, so if you had hundred closed wins on a certain number of tries, you are now going to get like 135. And so that's a big deal, right? Especially if you're selling something with a high dollar value. And, and then the other place was around customer support and companies that were really customer experience focused. Well, all that was like radical at the time. And it's completely obvious now. And, and so much so that before I left, we worked this woman that was working on my team, cause I was leading global member experience for WeWork. And this woman on my team said, we found this really amazing thing in a meeting with like 10 people. She said, we found this really amazing thing. When we get an NPS survey response, that's negative. It's really effective. If, if we just have one of our people send like a little video, like 30 to 60 seconds, she exactly described a VSTAP and, and what that was doing to sort of the save rate on those people. And, and uh, I was just sitting on the meeting, listening, kind of shaking my head going like, yeah, it's everything comes down to it. timing. Like, it doesn't really matter to me that we were right on. Like the use case, like people go like, is that frustrating to you that now you see this happening? And my answer is no. And it's also not like, oh, well, I feel so affirmed. I just, it's something we tried that didn't land at that moment in time, sort of in that context in the world. I mean, for one thing, like employees willingness to put themselves on video completely changed with two things. One demographic shift, like people who grew up with Snapchat as a teenager were very comfortable being on video when they were 25 years old working as a BDR or something like that. And that, and that just needed time to sort of filter into the workforce. And then the other thing is COVID. Like anyone who was hesitant about video, then COVID came along and they had no choice. And so, so that business just missed on timing. It's a long answer to your question to say like, what are failures that you like or whatever? I don't like any of them, to be honest. I don't think we should romanticize failure. I think we should try to win. And at the same time, when we have a failure, we should get every bit that we can out of it. And so it's hard for me to say, oh, I really appreciate this particular failure in my life because um, my habit is to get everything out of every one of them. And so in some sense, I appreciate all of them, even the ones that are really painful where you have to fire people that you're close to and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. So I, so I just think like, if you're in this mode of like, what can I take from this and, and how can I carry it forward and apply it, then it's just part of the journey. I think that's helpful, you know, as we think about listeners who might be facing challenges or making tough decisions as such as that. I think it's great advice and sort of the way to conceptualize or framework and think about a, a failure. And again, I'm having such a hard time saying that word. I usually don't, but it is such a, it's still yeah. such a stigma and a sensitive topic. But I guess, how do you destigmatize that in your, as you sort of put that baby to bed? Look, I don't ever, I don't really even use the word. I don't, I don't really think of it that way because, because it, it has a notion of finality to it that isn't like for the most part how I think. I mean, yes, in the context of a specific venture, you have a certain amount of runway, you have a certain objective. And when that runway expires, there is finality to that. So, so like you have to use the word failure sort of when you're in that situation. But for the most part, what happens day to day, week to week is we're trying to do things and sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong. And the important thing is that we're learning from the times that we're, that we're wrong. And so, so like if I launch an outbound campaign to engage such and such a persona around a product that I'm trying to sell and it doesn't work, do I dwell on the fact that that's a failure 
No, I just like structured the campaign in the first place so that if it doesn't work, I can figure out why and I can go back and change those things. So I think like maybe that's the takeaway is it's a lot about how you go into a project or a venture or uh, an initiative, which is making sure that you structure it so that what, what you learn when it happens, because this is what I see is maybe the biggest mistake and certainly a mistake I've made is that when people say, oh, we're going to run a test, they're not running a test. They're like throwing pasta at the wall and, and, and really to run a test means to sort of have a structured kind of process and the clarity of what success or failure is so that you can objectively define the results. It really goes back to when you were taught the scientific method in, in grammar school and, and, and it's just that applied over and over. So. The biggest thing is if you're kind of, if you're kind of working with that mindset, then it's not really about failure, even when you don't achieve what you're trying to achieve. It's really about, okay, well, we knew there was some percentage likelihood that it wasn't going to go the way we thought. And that turned out to be the case. And we can pretty accurately say why. So now we're going to try X instead of, you know, Y and let's keep plugging. Yeah. I see what you're saying. It's more of an experiment and not an emotional or sort of just a spaghetti at the wall. Interesting. Interesting. And I've had big uh, things in my life that were more emotional and, and they were they were less structured the way that I just described. You make bets and sometimes like when a big bet is wrong, that's obviously like it's hard not to have emotion around that. And the other thing I think is uh, the more that time passes, the more you realize that like you don't get an infinite number of at-bats. And so like, that's why I say like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to confuse anybody about, uh, yes, we can say failure is valuable, but it's not the objective. The objective is success. The objective is to win. And, and the more that you sort of use up your at-bats, the more you're like, look, I, I really want to, I really want to get a big hit on this one. Yeah. There's a question that I've been kicking around, but I'm not sure about it yet, but I'm going to ask you, cause I'm curious. It is, are you more afraid of success or more afraid of failure? And this is more for maybe first time founders, but more afraid of success or more afraid of failure? My reaction is I'm not afraid of either. <laughs> like, why would I be? I mean, I just described why failure is, is, is something that happens and to act like it's not as naive or, or egomaniacal or something. And so like, it's going to happen sometimes that's just sort of having your people acted in reality. So don't be afraid of it. Try to, try to encounter it in a way that you learn from it. and then success. I, I don't really know what it would mean to be so afraid of success. I mean, I guess it's about how you define success, right? And so in, in my mind, my definition of success is that, that the thing I set out to do happened, that I was able to kind of bring an idea to life in the world. And, and then it's possible that in bringing that idea to life, it didn't produce what I wanted or something like that. But I, I just, I kind of have this idea that, and I, and, and I kind of think this is one of the things that COVID really hammered home for me. And, and also like the, the experience of hyper growth that we work really hammered home for me, which is like all these things are imperfect. And anyone who sits around griping about the fact that they're imperfect, you should get a little distance from that person because that person just like, of course they're imperfect. Of course, the implementation of some strategy that we launched in such and such a market was imperfect. Of course, the approach to reading COVID test data was imperfect, et cetera, et cetera. So like, so for me, that's a starting point is, is this kind of like rooted pragmatism. And then from there, you're just trying to like, okay, how can we change that and make it much better? okay, how can we make it a little better? Where in that spectrum between like making it a little better and making it much better, are we going to land? How do we land further up the spectrum, et cetera? Yeah, I, I think it's important to sort of distance the emotion some from some of these decisions. Sometimes you can't, sometimes it is emotional, but certainly taking that pragmatic approach, I do think makes for 
any easier way to sort of quantify results, quantify, or maybe allow yourself not to beat yourself up too much. And by the way, you know me, like, I'm not like, nobody would say like, Dave's not very passionate. Like I'm like, I'm a pretty passionate person. So it's not that I don't have like fire in my belly around the thing that I'm trying to do. I do, but maybe this is just sort of the number of reps that I've run at this point. Like, I know that not everything's going to work out. And I, and, and I, I think it's a superpower to really be able to look reality in the face and say, okay, here's where we are. Here are the ways we can navigate this. Here's what I think is the right way. Here are going to be the costs of doing that, et cetera. I love that. Of The superpower is to look reality in the face. I think we could all do a little more of that these days. Question I wanted to get back to, and I think I just lost my train of thought on it. I know, what was I going to ask? It was a really great question. Oh, so one of the things you mentioned before was when you were making the decision to shut down vSnap, you created a list of all of your employees, their skills, their their job titles, their job profiles, and you circulated that to basically every VC, every founder you knew in the area to help your people get new jobs. And I think it was a really successful and innovative approach that worked really well. What other things would you recommend as best practices uh, if you're shutting down a startup? Oh boy, it's been a while since I've been there. I mean, obviously that's a big one. It's like everybody kind of goes into the trenches with you and and you owe it to them to kind of help them come through this experience as quickly and as successfully as possible. So I think that's an easy way to do that. And and also, by the way, everybody you share the list with is so grateful because they're all, everyone's looking for a great talent. So you have 10 or five or 50 people and and you can kind of uh, circulate that, like everyone appreciates it. The other thing that we did with VSnap was I went on like a campaign to try to buy for the technology. And and so like, I just got really sort of strategic about like, okay, these are what I think the three kind of possible buyer scenarios are. Here are, here are people that either in my network or that I can get a meeting with to, to sort of have a discovery call with and essentially test whether I'm right that they might want to be a buyer of this. And, and here's an event that's coming up where a lot of these people are aggregated. I can go and hit 15 people in one afternoon kind of thing. So I just think like you can, you can kind of wallow in this situation or you can start to organize it for execution. And it's frankly, it feels much better to do that. So like, not only is it the right thing to do in terms of like trying to return capital to your investors and sort of tying things off neatly and avoiding like future I don't know, questions from the IRS or something, but also it's the right thing to do in terms of like taking your own energy and kind of spinning it forward and, and so on. I had this other experience. I, I can't remember if I, uh, if we ever talked about this, but I made a movie in 2007 called On Broadway, which was um, a great film. We made it for a little over a million dollars. And what happened was, I don't know, this guy was supposed to finance it. And so, and, and, we, and, and he was going to put up something like a half a million dollars, which is like nothing to make a movie, right? But I kind of like gotten a whole bunch of friends to health and got all these people doing us favors. And we had a, we had a production schedule to do the movie for that number. And then actually like actors were like Joey McIntyre, the former new kid in the block was the lead in the movie. And he was like on a plane flying from LA. And, and this actress named Jill Flint was like on an Amtrak from New York coming up. And, and that day found out that the guy who said he had the financing, it had fallen through. And so it was just a brutal, like that was incredible sort of kick in the gut. And, and I remember being in that production office in the South End in Boston and just being like, oh, and, and my, my son, Jude, who's 17 now was a baby and he was in the daycare and I had to pick him up at five. Like, it's not like you can't pick up your kid. So it was like, okay, well, I gotta go pick up the baby. And so like, I went and got him and I brought him home and then my wife got out of work and, and I was telling her what happened. And I took like a day of just like lying around, sort of licking my wounds and, and people calling me going like, Hey, you're starting filming this week. Right. And, and it's like, no, actually here's what happened. And, 
And to be honest, Ashley, I just, after like three of those phone calls, I was like, I cannot listen to myself tell this story over and over. Cause in this story, like I'm the sad sack and it's like, oh, like what, a, what could have been kind of thing. And I just, it just felt so lame and pathetic. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to go out and raise some money. And I don't really know how to do that. But I immediately just started kind of creating a plan and sort of just taking, taking shots at it and, and kind of like learning a little bit, adjusting the plan and so on. And in the course of doing that, somebody, one of the guys who was helping to make the movie said, I, I have this friend and, and they're interested in financing movies and I'm going to introduce you to a really awesome couple. Their names Henry and Donna Burlock. And, and we wound up really kind of striking up a shared vision and they came in and funded the whole movie. And, and it's sort of a story about like, sometimes you have to make a plan, even if it's not the perfect plan and start putting it in motion. And then other things get sort of gravitated toward that. And, and like, in other words, the person who made this introduction for Henry and Donna wouldn't have done that if I hadn't started sort of taking all these, um, other meetings and trying to kind of drive the ball forward. And I'm reminded of Joseph Campbell, the author, Joseph Campbell, who, who wrote about myth and so on. There's a line in his book. He's the guy who kind of created the hero's journey. And he says in this sort of archetypal hero's journey, the hero takes one step toward the gods and the gods take 10 steps toward the hero. And, and so often it feels that way when you're trying to do something really big and you can't quite see how it's going to happen, but you take that leap and then like the universe or whatever you want to say, sort of things start to get drawn to what you're doing. And, and suddenly opportunities are there that you couldn't see from the safety of your living room. You couldn't see them until you kind of get out and put yourself out in that position. So what I find is people want to be part of stuff that's special. People want to be start part of big visions and big kind of ambitious journeys, hero journeys, if you like. And, and so when you kind of step out that way and you really come at that in a way that's sincere, my experience has been that other people want to support that, not everybody. And, uh, and it's a competitive environment and all those kind of things, but, but there are people that want to support that and you can find the resources generally, but also that's not infinite. And this is why we have the topic of failure. Because you can, you can sort of just live in that mythology that I just described. Like, yeah, just go for it. If you go that they will film. It's bullshit. Like it's, it's true up to a point, but it's not infinite. And, and that's sort of where some people get confused. They think like you can just stay in that mode, but you can't, you, you really do have to realize that, Hey, this can die. This thing that I'm sort of pouring my life into can die. And, and sometimes it does. And, and when it does, it's painful, but also like, it's not the end of your life. You, you should try to carry it forward. Yeah. And stay rooted in pragmatism. Have a plan for failure, even though you're pursuing an absolute sort of pie in the sky dream is how I think about it as well. You know, you kind of have to live in both words, worlds, which is staying totally optimistic. Best case scenario, this is going to work out in the most amazing ways, but then also keeping uh, track of what happens if it doesn't work and how can I measure a, and pivot. There's a name for that. It, it's I think the best business author like bar none is Jim Collins. Okay. And so, so like if, if a listener is going like, where can I read? What should I read? Like there's, there's a whole I'll have him on warehouse the full of books that you can read. What's that? I said, I'll bring him onto the podcast. Obviously. That'll be an amazing get. If you get him, that would be awesome. So I'm, I'm pulling for you on that. So Jim Collins is incredible. He wrote good to great. And then, and he's the inventor of concepts like the flywheel contract and things like that. And, and he talks about the Stockdale oh, yeah. paradox. He's, and he is, he's a professor at Stanford. Or was. I think I have a friend was. who was in that class. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think, I think he left to sort of be a full-time kind of thinker. He's like the Peter Drucker of our, of our day. Yeah. And he was, a, he was a kind of protege of Peter Drucker. 
But anyway, he has this concept that he talks about called the Stockdale Paradox. And Stockdale was the highest ranking American in a prisoner of war camp, I think, in Vietnam. And, and what allowed them to survive, what, what Stockdale talked about after the fact, was that this duality of like being completely pragmatic and also having complete faith that it was going to work out. And, and what he said was the people who lost their minds in that prisoner of war camp were the ones who were like, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas came and went and then they couldn't handle it. So they got themselves so focused on an event that they thought was going to happen and it didn't happen and they, and they, and they fell apart. Whereas Stockdale kind of like got the guys to go like, we're going to be here a long time. We're going to be here a long time, but in the end, we're going to be all right. And it's a little bit like that famous Churchill speech that, that he gave when he came back into power as prime minister. And he, he talked about, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but basically he says, I have nothing to offer you, but blood and sweat and tears and toil. And, and it's the speech that rallied the nation and sort of rallied them behind his leadership because Churchill had come from, he was a little bit of a failed public figure. I mean, by the way, you want to talk about failure, like what, yeah. what happened for him in Super Bay and then, and then he came back and wound up leading the nation in its most, in its most the critical hour and, and really leading the world in a sense, because he brought, he engineered kind of this kind of campaign for America to come into the war and all this kind of thing. So anyway, that speech of like, I have nothing to offer you, but blood and sweat and tears and toil. Like it's amazing, right? It's, it's like, let's not kid ourselves what this is going to require, but we are going to win. And our plan is to fight on the beaches and fight on the, that whole kind of spiel every game. So yeah, that's a, that's an interesting idea. That's hard to hold on to these two competing thoughts, which is like, we need to understand how grim and, and, and arduous this is going to be. And at the same time, we need to hold on to this idea of like success, mm -hmm. you know, it is a duality and it does take a special, I think, skill set and constitution to sort of hang in there on the entrepreneurial ride. I think it is a roller coaster. And obviously I think you have quite the skill set for it, but I'm becoming very convinced that I'm pretty sure you could do anything. And I'm very excited for what you're going to do next at Reach. Do you have any milestones or goals that you're working on that you could share on Reach or? Well, we're working on them. I'm only, uh, I'm only two months, two months into it or, or something like that. So it's no hundred day plan. There is, but, but yeah, it's more, it's more internal. I just think it's interesting because on the one hand, we, we just had this big bull market cycle of crypto the last couple of years that brought a lot of attention on the blockchain and increased the number of developers in blockchain. But still, even after that, the number of developers in blockchain is minuscule compared to any other benchmark. So for instance, there's a report that comes out every January by Electric Capital, which talks about the, I think it's the total number of developers who, who filed code on GitHub on one of the layer one blockchains. And that number is something like 36,000. So like, like all of blockchain web three, you're talking about at least like open source projects, you're talking about like 36,000 developers total. And then Andreessen came out with a report recently that said the number that are actually active on a monthly basis, it's something like six or 7,000. So like for context, I, I think I read that JP Morgan has 40,000 developers. So just JP Morgan has 40,000 that are, you know, working full time at JP Morgan. Google has 26,000 or something like that. There's something, I don't remember the number. I want to say there's like 12 million JavaScript developers in the world. So the point being the potential of what blockchain and web three can be, we haven't seen because we haven't seen the influx of developers that are the people who will create those applications that we couldn't anticipate. And so right now, what you're seeing is there's some really interesting applications. Like I'll use Uniswap as an example, which is a decentralized exchange. And then there's lots of other people who have made decentralized exchanges, but like 
what we haven't seen yet is somebody invented Google on blockchain or somebody invented Uber on blockchain or somebody invented TikTok on blockchain. And so the things from the web two kind of phase that happened that in hindsight look inevitable, but you know, with foresight, we couldn't necessarily predict like, what are those things going to be in web three? And, and then in order for that to happen, you're going to need amazing tools for kind of building and, and testing and deploying those applications. And that's what reaches is really the best way to build and launch an application on blockchain. And it's, it's really interesting because the field is like, you have a set of tools that are kind of like Squarespace or Wix or Shopify, meaning they're like templatized development tools for, for a blockchain, the data structure. And, and so those are interesting because anyone can come into them with no kind of blockchain experience and it start to build, but like what you can build is very limited to what the templates fit. So, so you got kind of a low floor coming in, but a really low ceiling as well. And what reach does is we are syntactically very, very similar to JavaScript. So anyone who is a JavaScript developer can come into reach really easily. So it has that low floor, but then the ceiling is sort of whatever you can imagine because of the way the, the language is architected. And, and there's this other really interesting thing around blockchain, which is that you deploy these applications in a decentralized structure, which means that it's not as though you just issue a patch and like sort of when you find a bug or whatever. So there's a lot more riding on how you deploy them. Mm. And, and therefore audits are like kind of a, a common practice when you're talking about smart contracts, especially smart contracts that are getting handled like a lot of dollar or a lot of asset value. And, and so reach uses something called formal verification, which is a set of mathematical proofs that are baked into the compiler to identify where you have kind of common smart contract vulnerabilities in your code and prevent that code from running. So, so it basically reduces the likelihood that you put something out in the world that has these problems in the first place. And, and that's a big deal in a world where, again, this thing isn't just sitting on a centralized server and you can just sort of issue an update. Yeah, I'm very, I, I had had a company reach out to me to, if I could help them craft a Web3 strategy. And I said, sure, fine. I had no idea what I was doing, but it is fascinating because it truly is like, we're back in 1999, right? And it's someone being like, hey, Ashley, should I have a web page for my business, right? I mean, it's that level of like, what is Web3 and how do I interact and play in this space? And then sure, you've got all the NFT and the blockchain thing that sort of is complicated, but truly it is like, at the, I feel like it's 1999 all over again. So kudos to you, because it is, like you said, we don't know yet what we don't know and what's going to come out of this. Like, it'll seem really intuitive in about five years of, oh, that was a great idea. And like, that's a really big use case or extension or really big technology leap forward. But right now, I think everyone, it just feels like it's just wide open space. And it's I'm very, very intrigued by what you're doing. So. It's interesting to see it through the eyes of my kids. My kids are 14 and 17 now. And so like I work in this stuff and I talk about it and, and they're kind of intrigued. And, and some of the pieces are just so much more intuitive for them mm -hmm. than they are for me. Like their adoption cycle is just so much faster than mine because, well, partly because they play video games mm -hmm. and like sort of there's so many things about Web3 that the, the kind of analog way of thinking exists in a video game already. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the idea of like loot boxes or whatever in video games is, is a little bit like digital assets. I mean, it is digital assets, just not, it's just not digital, like um, blockchain based digital assets necessarily. But so, so I, I think this is another one of those things, like in 2013, 2014, when we had vSnap and I was looking at my nieces that were 17 on Snapchat and going, they're using video, why aren't my customers? 
like surely the demographics is going to drive this. I would say the same thing is true for, for Web3 right now, that there's a, a set of teenagers that are living, not living in video game worlds, that sounds dystopian, but are spending some portion of their time in those worlds and, and the kind of practices and mores and ways of thinking in those worlds are, are really kind of helpful in terms of understanding this, this world of decentralized digital assets and kind of what they can mean and, and how you can use these things and so forth. So like, to me, it's one of these things when I look at it, I, I just think it's inevitable. But in order yes. for it to be inevitable, we're really going to have to empower a whole generation of developers to start to express their imagination in this world and, and to sort of build awesome things. And there are some of those awesome things that have already been built, but like, really, it's kind of a small number relative to what this is going to look like going forward. Well, I will say, I, I mean, the only caveat, or there's a couple, but the biggest one to me is just, I think I saw something recently just on how I think something ridiculous, like 80 or 60% of Gen Z would rather sit home and interact on their phone than sort of go out to a concert. They'd rather do it digitally or just connecting via their mobile. And so I think there is that, it's not necessarily dystopian, but just certainly like just interacting only virtually going forward, which makes me a little nervous as someone who likes to <laughs> meet in person and doesn't want to live as an avatar walking around in Web3 communities. But here we are. I definitely don't want to live in an avatar and I never will. And I also, I also sort of think that like, there can be a trend that, that like, maybe those numbers are real. Maybe they're not. I don't know. I think one thing of the last few years is that we've all really learned to sort of like not take numbers at face value necessarily, but, but so maybe those numbers are real, maybe they're not. And then I kind of go like, okay, even if I'm living in that way, like, is it going to be satisfying and fulfilling enough for me to stay there? Or will I come back and realize like, hey, I tried that. And, you know, now I want to be at the pub, sort of like talking to the people in my neighborhood and or or the, the sports field or the whatever the theater or whatever it might be. So I, I think there is certainly there's a lot that is. There's stuff that's hard to be optimistic about, and, and I don't like I don't want to be like uh, kind of Pollyanna ish about that stuff. But I also, I do think that there's this sort of drive of human nature. That's like, we want to connect. And I think that like connecting digitally can be a piece of that and, and can be a good piece of that. But I also think to your point, that's probably not going to really be fulfilling in the way that we need. Yeah. It's an interesting dovetail, I think, with the COVID pandemic, right? We, we got so used to just interacting on Zoom and like, oh, you know what? Maybe there is a proxy for not meeting in person. And then of course, we're all like, can we please just all meet in person and see each other? But there is that sort of tipping point, I think, that COVID brought on that makes for maybe even easier adoption in some of the Web3 stuff. But I had this funny thing one night, it was probably a year, I don't know, I don't know when it was, it, like the pandemic was still going on, but it was kind of winding down. And I was, I was driving home through Somerville and, and there was this like crazy rainstorm, like you couldn't see four feet in front of the car. So I pulled over and I went into the bar and pub in Davis Square and the place was mob, like. And I, I know the owners, guy named Tommy. And, and so anyway, I got a table of like to get a bite to eat. And Tommy saw me and came over and started chatting. And I was like, Tommy, it's Tuesday night. Like in, in like, we're not out of the woods. And it's like, like, this is amazing. All these people are out. He goes, Dave, they woke up in the morning and they turn the computer on with their toe. And at the end of the day, they roll over and like, they're in the house all day. They just want to get out. Mm -hmm. And, and it was so simple and true. Like, yeah, people just want to. People just want to be together. I mean, at WeWork, obviously, we saw this a lot as people started to come back to the office because there were a set of people that people want more flexibility than they want in the past, certainly, but also like people want to connect and, and sort of be together. And there's such joy in that now. I think we have much greater appreciation for that. 
Hey, I wanted to tell you another thing you had, you had asked me in the correspondence before we got on this call about lessons learned or something like that. And, and there was an, and I was thinking about what are kind of things that your listeners can go to. And so I mentioned Jim Collins is, is one of them. And like, there's an amazing podcast with Shane Parrish and Jim Collins on the knowledge project. There's another one with Jim Ferris. So like, if you just look Tim Collins, uh, Jim Collins on your, on your podcast application, like you'll find some stuff that's really great. And then he's got some amazing books, but the other one is. There's a podcast out there with Charlie Munger, where he talks about, it's a, it's a talk that he gave at, I think Harvard or Harvard business school. And it's basically like 25, I think it's 25 errors of human judgment. Hmm. And he goes through like the places where we kid ourselves about things or the, like the cognitive biases. It's like 25 different cognitive biases. I must've listened to that podcast at least a dozen times. Because it's so fascinating. You're going through and you're listening. You go, oh yeah, I've made that mistake where I, I interpreted this piece of evidence in this way, even though like that's really was me applying my own bias to it or whatever. So I think we talked before about how important it is to be grounded in reality and what a superpower that is. That uh, podcast with Charlie Munger is one of the things that I find can, can kind of help people do that because it helps you sort of see through the way you want to read what's happening and actually understand the range of possibilities for like, What's happening could mean that I figured out product market fit, but it also could mean that there's a weird bubble in demand because of some externality. And so anyway, just in terms of resources for people. You want to hear a little of the Churchill speech? Yeah, let's go. I hope I may be pardoned if I do not address the house at any length today. I hope that any of my friends and colleagues or former colleagues who are affected by the political reconstruction will make all allowances for any lack of ceremony with which it has been necessary to act. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears. Gives you chills, right? I read a number last year that I, I don't know if I'm remembering it right, but I think that there are a thousand biographies of Winston Churchill. <laughs> That's what an interesting guy he was. Like his story, by the way, like his story was failure, public, like men lost their wives, like major, major. And he just kind of kept plugging and he came back and he played this amazing role and such an interesting person. It's always good to see you. So thanks. And Dave, thanks for your help. And yeah, this is, uh, this is fun. Okay. Anything about websites? Where can people find reach? What do you need? Any plugs, promotion, whatever? Everybody needs plugs. Reach is reach.sh and all the, the tools are there. And on Twitter, reach Lang, L-A-N-G is the uh, Twitter handle. And, and there's all sorts of fun bounty acts and challenges and th ways for people to get involved and without a lot of, without a lot of prior experience, the docs are all public. It's an open source project, et cetera, et cetera. So come check us out and tell us how we can give you some feedback that helps you build what you're dreaming of building on the blockchain. We'd love to have that conversation. Love it. All right, Dave, until next time, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Ashley. See you soon. Thanks for listening to The Entrepreneur. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about The Entrepreneur, including booking information, please visit pod617.com slash entrepreneur. The Entrepreneur is a production of pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.